so great to see the, the investment that uh, we are making in our young adults who uh, were able to attend that, and we trust that that will continue to bear much fruit. Shout out to James for a great video. Appreciate that. Speaking of fruit, turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and uh, that's going to be a major topic in the passage today. Uh, today, some of you will be thankful to know you're going to be hearing a sermon not from me, but you're going to be eavesdropping uh, on a sermon that was preached by the Lord Jesus himself. And so this is a message uh, that we oftentimes call the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, some people have called this sermon Jesus' Great Kingdom Manifesto. A manifesto is a public uh, proclamation or a declaration issued by a head of state or uh, the CEO of an organization to cast a large vision for what they want their group to be like. And so this is kind of the State of the Union address, if you will, something of that nature. As Jesus begins his public ministry, he starts with this uh, in amazing manifesto uh, describing the way of life uh, in terms of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus from the very lips of the Lord Jesus, which is amazing. We have a copy of it right here. Uh, the key question in this sermon is, what does it look like to truly be a Christian in this world as opposed to not living as a Christian in this world? Or to put it another way, what does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus as opposed to not being a part of the kingdom of Jesus? And so fundamentally, this is a sermon about two kinds of people. It was the great Yogi Berra who once said, there are three kinds of people in the world, those who can count and those who cannot. Uh, this is a sermon about two kinds of people. At the end of the message, he's going to talk about two kinds of trees, one which bears good fruit and one which bears bad fruit. And the question we have to ask and answer for ourselves is, which tree am I? Which tree are you? Uh, perhaps the key verse in terms of helping us interpret this sermon is chapter uh, 6, verse 46, where Jesus asks this very convicting question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, that's a very interesting question. Commenting on that question, Alistair Begg wrote in his book about this sermon on the plane, saying this, he, meaning Jesus, is not saying that a verbal profession of faith is unimportant. However, what Jesus is saying is that it is distinctly possible to make a verbal profession, an orthodox, enthusiastic, public verbal profession, which is, in fact, unreal. Wow. So how do we know if someone is a real follower of Jesus versus someone who just merely has a profession of faith which is unreal? That's the question Jesus is asking and answering in this text in the middle of Luke chapter 6. Now this is an invitation for personal introspection. Uh, please don't listen to Jesus' sermon thinking about how this applies to your spouse or thinking about how this applies to your neighbor or wishing so-and-so was in the room to hear this great sermon by Jesus. Instead, focus your attention on your own heart, concentrate on yourself, and take this as a challenge from the Lord Jesus to you and to all of us. Uh, there's 32 verses in this sermon consisting of 725 words in the ESV, and there are three major sections. First, we're going to see the values of Jesus' kingdom. Section two, we're going to see the commands of Jesus' kingdom. And then section three, we're going to see the litmus test of Jesus' kingdom. So that's where we're headed. That's the map. And let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me one more time? God, we thank you for this teaching. Lord Jesus, we want to sit at your feet today and learn from you. So we would invite you to speak with clarity. Uh, we would invite you to bring conviction. 
to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We are listening. And I would invite you just to pause and pray that the Lord would bless this time uh, in his word, in your own words. Just pause for a moment and would you pray for that? And then just pause and would you also pray for the speaker today that, uh, that I would be helpful here. Lord, we stand in reverence of your word, and uh, we do so with humility, and so teach, teach us, Lord, what you would have, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So let's pick up the context with verse 17, if you will. As we read these words, it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, the crowds have gathered. Jesus is doing some miracles. Jesus is doing some foundational teaching. In verse 17, we see that he uh, comes to a level place or a plain. This is why we call it the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, some of you who are very familiar with your Bibles will recognize parts of this teaching of Jesus is also found elsewhere in what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Many parts are similar. But these two sermons are not 100% identical. There are differences in three areas, both in content, in sequence, and in the setting. Now, skeptics see that, and they go, see, the Bible's not accurate. In one place, it has Jesus saying this in a certain way. In another place, it has Jesus saying that in a little bit of a different way. And so they don't match exactly. Therefore, the Bible has errors. Therefore, the, their deduction is, well, we can't trust this. But that conclusion is not necessarily reasonable if you think about it for a moment. Any teacher often will teach on a certain amount of basic content on more than one occasion to different audiences. And Jesus, of course, was no exception to that. Jesus, I trust, taught many of his messages in different places, in different locations. We don't have a record of every single time he did some teaching. And so here uh, we have some of that teaching that resembles what we have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But it's in a different context and really for a different audience and a different purpose. I know I've done that. I've preached one place with one set of teachings and then kind of adjusted that and contextualized for another setting in a different audience. And there was some overlap and some similarity there. Jesus, of course, would do the same thing. So here he is doing some teaching. And uh, in the tradition of the prophets, he's going to begin with some uh, words of blessing and some words of woe. And so uh, take a look at verse 20 as we begin the formal part of the Sermon on the Plain. It says this, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's just pause for a moment and make a few observations. Jesus declares four different categories of blessing and four different categories of woe. The term blessed here means to be happy or fortunate or privileged. And the word woe here refers to be under the divine judgment of God or under the curse of God, the opposite of a blessing. 
And notice the contrast, the stark contrast between the two. What we have here at the very beginning of this message is the explanation of the value system of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ set in stark contrast with the values of the kingdom of this world, which happens to be the kingdom that Jesus is replacing. Now, the term kingdom is a major theme in Luke. It's used at least 30 different times. Jesus' kingdom is what he came to establish or inaugurate, and Jesus' kingdom is what he came to teach about. And here in this beginning section of the sermon, uh, this is his explanation of what kind of values are present in his kingdom. Uh, Jesus' kingdom might be called what you might call the upside-down kingdom. And the kingdom of this world, the one that he's replacing, you might call the right-side-up kingdom. And he says you can either be a, a citizen of one or the other. You can't be a citizen of, of both. And in my kingdom, these are my values. Now, every kingdom has certain things that we put at the top, and we have certain things that we put at the bottom. Every kingdom has certain things that we value, and every kingdom has certain things that we askew or that we avoid or that we don't value. So if you look on the right side of the screen, what are the values of the old kingdom that he's replacing? Well, he's pretty clear about that. Wealth, power, comfort, nice clothes, success. Verse 25 says, you who laugh. Really, a better translation would probably be you who gloat. It's the kind of laughing that happens at the party after you win the election. It's the kind of gloating that happened in Green Bay last week as they defeated the Dallas Cowboys. And it's the kind of gloating that the Niners fans did last night as they defeated the Packers. Those who laugh are laughing in scorn because they are the victors, not the victims. Uh, the old kingdom values laughter. The old kingdom values Recognition in verse 26, when people speak well of you. What's that? That's acclaim. That's recognition. That's celebrity. Those are the values of the old kingdom. And what do we not value in the old kingdom? What do we sneer at? Well, you look at the left side. We don't value poverty. Uh, we don't value weakness. We don't value sacrifice. We don't value grief. We don't value exclusion. We don't value discomfort. In fact, we do everything we can to avoid those things. So, which would you rather be? Well, would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated? Or would you rather be rich, well-fed, happy, and popular? Now, at first, it seems fairly natural to put this world's values at the top. We value power and comfort and success and recognition and so on. Why? Because these values are the power of the now. These values are what we can enjoy today. These are things that we can have right this very moment. To value any of these other things just makes no sense, especially if this life is all there is. But it's not. It is not all there is. Actually, the Bible teaches that this world is quickly passing away. And regarding the kingdom of this world, the old kingdom, the handwriting is on the wall. As it says in Daniel chapter 5, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of living for myself is temporary and it is doomed. Therefore, as Alistair Begg says, true happiness does not lie in the obvious and natural choice, but in the countercultural counter and the Christian choice. So here Jesus says, well, what do you want? Do you want to be happy now or do you want to be happy then? Uh, Jesus says, if you live for then, in verse 23, there's no way to have everybody speak well of you now. If everybody speaks well of you now, you are a people pleaser. And Jesus says elsewhere, if you're a people pleaser, you cannot be pleasing to God. 
In this world, we read books called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Jesus is talking about how to lose friends and influence people. In this world, uh, we will live for the now and the riches that we can enjoy today. But in reality, Jesus says, even if you enjoy those things, don't you realize you are just as spiritually helpless as the poor? You may not recognize that. The reason is, as one commentator says, your material wealth can serve to insulate you from the things that would make you aware of your own spiritual neediness. But following after Jesus' kingdom and having his values simply means pursuing comfort and wealth and ease, uh, means that pursuing comfort and wealth and ease in this life are no longer your controlling passions. Why? Because you're, you're not living for now. You're living for then. So it's one or the other. It's not both. So what we learn in this first section are the mark of what makes you a Christian and that mark is you've had a complete reversal of all of your values. We now prize what this world devalues and vice versa. This is essentially what it means to follow Jesus. One commentator put it this way. Jesus does not imagine a situation where a person can enjoy both the present pleasures of this world and also the joys of the next world. Wow. Now how does that statement challenge you? How does that land on you? Is this true for you? Do you value those things that Jesus values? Or do you value really the things that are present in the kingdom of this world? What will you live for? Will you live for the true blessings in the future? Or will you live for what's immediately gratifying today? My answer to that question determines whether or not I'm under the blessing of God or am I under the woe of Jesus' sayings here? And my prayer is that nobody in this congregation will ever hear God say to them, woe. So those are the values of Jesus' kingdom. And that leads us to section two, which is the commands of Jesus' kingdom. Verses 27 to 42. There are five specific commands that should characterize all followers of the Lord Jesus. And the first one Jesus lays out for us with these three simple words. Commandment number one is, love your enemies. Can we say that together? Love your enemies. Might as well start with the hardest command in the Bible. Here we go, verse 27. Jesus says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do for you, do so to them. Here we have the golden rule. Notice Jesus is teaching here that we are to love our enemies. Now the word love here is not talking about a warm feeling. It's the Greek word agape. It's that term that refers to that purposeful, intentional, self-sacrificial kind of love that's not natural and definitely not easy. There was a man once who went to a Christian counselor because he wanted to divorce his wife. And she had not been unfaithful or anything like that. And the reason he gave is he just said, well, I just don't love her anymore. And the counselor said to him, well, you know, the Bible says husbands love your wives. So you, you don't have much of a choice here. 
The husband said, you don't get it. I don't want to even live in the same house with this woman anymore. The counselor said, well, why don't you have a trial separation and move next door? The guy said, well, well, why would that help anything? What good would that do? The counselor says, well, the the Bible says love your neighbor, (laughs) and maybe obeying that command will be easier for you. The man's getting exasperated at this point, says, you don't get it. I can't stand the sight of her. I have nothing but enmity in my heart towards her. The counselor says, oh, well, she's your enemy. (laughs) Well, the Bible says love your enemies. And I think that guy went to go find a different counselor after that. (laughs) Jesus is not talking about warm feelings here. He's talking about loving actions. He's saying we need to learn how to behave towards those who are our enemies, with our actions. Notice, he says, even in the crucible of insult and being wrong, Jesus says, I want your love to endure. You should still be generous and forbearing, forbearing and patient and gracious, treating others just like you would want to be treated, even in the face of harsh treatment. I want you to remain engaged and even vulnerable to further insults. That's what I want for you, my, my follower. Now, that's a tall order. Now, there's some question here about Jesus' sayings and how far we should take this. Now, some people take this a little bit too literalistically. Uh, people say, well, what are you saying? Should a woman who's abused by her husband feel constrained to subject herself to abuse in the name of turning the other cheek? And the answer is no, because that's not what love looks like. Uh, should I give to a heroin addict just so that they can continue their addiction? Well, well no, that, that's not what love looks like either. What Jesus is defining here is the area of love that's difficult for us towards those who are at times against us. So to read this text properly is just to see Jesus speaking in very extreme terms in order to make for us a very serious point, namely that his followers are called to love and that our love should extend even to those who are our enemies. Now to do all of this, it requires a change of heart. It requires no transformed heart to love those who love you. But to love your enemies, that is not what I want to do. That is not what we want to do, at least not in the flesh. And Jesus addresses this as he continues in verse 32. He says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive... What credit is that to you? Even sinners led to sinners to get back the same amount. Notice that repetition three different times. Jesus says, what benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? In other words, everybody does that. What's the big deal? It's kind of self-serving. One hand washes the other. It's just you scratching my back and I'll scratch your back. The world knows how to do that. The old kingdom knows how to do that. Jesus says, I'm calling you to something better. I'm calling you to something higher. I'm calling you to something different. So he's establishing here what we might call a radical counterculture. We spent decades in the evangelical church in what's called the seeker-sensitive movement, trying to establish with the unbelieving world that we're really the same. Alistair Begg is super helpful on this point here in that book again. He says this, we are not called to be like the world. And the world does not need us to be like the world. We have something better to say because we have someone better to follow. 
our relevance to the world is not in finding how similar we are to the world. Our relevance to the world is in the fact that we are entirely different from the world. The text continues in verse 35, as Jesus says this, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is, your, is merciful. Did you understand his reasoning here? Why, Jesus, why should I do that? Why should I love my enemies? It's because that's what God does. It's because that's what our Heavenly Father does. And we are made simply in his image to reflect him. A couple days ago, my brother sent me a text, and he goes, hey, bro, when you sit down on your lazy boy easy chair and put your feet up, do you, like, cross your fingers on your arms and, like, put them on your belly just like, your, just like Dad used to do? I'm like, send me a picture. So he sends me that. I'm like, yeah, Dad used to do that. I go, no, I don't do that, but sometimes when I'm reading a book on the couch and I look through the, the, the focal part of my glasses, I look down like that, and my wife's like, you look just like your dad when you're reading like that. And he's like, yeah, you're right, dad did that. And we don't even know, sometimes we had a good laugh over that. We, we just kind of reflect our biological father. We do stuff that he used to do. And we had a good little moment of remembering those things. Children resemble their parents. What Jesus is saying here is that your heavenly father is a merciful Heavenly Father, and if you are His child, then you are to be merciful as well, because you are made to reflect Him. Why should we love our enemies? Because God loves His enemies, and that includes you and me. So let me ask you this morning a very convicting question. Who's your enemy? Just who's that person, their picture, their, their, you know, their face is coming into your mind right now? How might God be calling you to love your enemies? That's commandment number one. Love your enemies. Commandment number two is this. Do not judge. Let's say that together. Do not judge. Now, this is the one Bible verse that I think all non-Christians have memorized by heart. Uh, I hear this one phrase trotted out by the most unlikely people in the most unlikely settings in the most, you know, unlikely ways. It's like, you don't follow Jesus at all. You don't believe the Bible at all, but you, you know this verse, and it's almost like you, you believe it. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, Jesus talks about this in verse 37. He says this, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So what does this mean? Well, some people think it means we're not supposed to make any moral evaluations. Of course, that's not true, because to say that you cannot make a moral evaluation is to make a moral evaluation. It's impossible not to make a moral evaluation. As soon as you say, don't do it, you just did it. Jesus is not saying that we can never evaluate behaviors negatively. No, he's saying rather we should refrain from a condescending and judgmental tone and that our gaze should first be on our own failures before we begin to address the failures of others. So what is judging? Judging is about a posture of moral superiority. Or to teach you a big word today, what Jesus is condemning is something called censoriousness. And what this is, it's defined as a spirit of self-righteous, self-exalting, hypocritical, harsh judgmentalism. This was the posture of the Pharisees. 
And we are often more like the Pharisees than we want to believe. We can be very tempted to judge in this way, or we make certain external behaviors the standard uh, by which we are approved in Jesus' kingdom. Standards like attendance at certain church programs or our appearance. We make those things true indicators that someone's really a Christian, and then we look down on people who don't meet our arbitrary standards. Pastor Bob talked about the attitude of the Pharisees last week with the sitting and the questioning and the grumbling. That's not good. That's a judgmental spirit. Jesus gives an illustration about this. It's a famous illustration in verses 41. Let your eyes drop down to that text. Jesus says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, this familiar saying is a rather ironic and somewhat humorous statement that Jesus made. We got this one guy with a tiny speck in his eye, and then we've got another guy with a huge wooden plank in his eye. The word is the word for, like, beam. Jesus says, this is how foolish you look. You're so quick to see the imperfections in everybody else but you're simultaneously ignoring the plank in your own eye. How silly this is. How foolish this looks. How ridiculous it is. When you're tempted to judge, let me just remind you that we should first be introspective. A Christian is someone who recognizes the plank in their own eye first and sees other people's sins as specks. John Piper is helpful here. In his quote, he says this, The anger of judgmentalism is broken by the brokenheartedness of seeing the log in your own eye, in our own eye. So if, if I'm always critical, if I'm always judgmental toward others, uh, there may be a chance that I don't fully comprehend who God is and who I am and all God has already done to be merciful and forgiving and gracious toward me. That condescending attitude could be, it could be a, a, a revelatory fact that I don't really comprehend the gospel for myself. And if I don't, then I'm in grave danger. So when we're tempted to judge, let's remember verse 36. Our heavenly father is merciful and we are to emulate him. So who in your life are you tempted to judge? Who's that person that you're currently judging? And whose sin do you see as worse, yours or theirs? My brothers and sisters, remember God's grace in your life. Remember, if you're excelling in any area where they have not yet grown in, the only reason for that is because God has been gracious to you and allowed you to grow in that area. So take that same grace that he's applied to you and apply that to others. So that's commandment number two, do not judge. Commandment number three, they don't get any easier. Okay, sorry. Commandment number three is this. Forgive those who wrong you. Let's say that together. Forgive those who wrong you. A Christian is someone who has learned to forgive. We see this in verse 37. Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. The word forgive here means to release somebody from a debt, to let it go, to leave it to God, to move on, to trust God to bring about justice here, not me, and do that in his own time. 
Again, Alistair Begg is helpful. He says, quote, when we choose not to forgive, not only are we punishing the unforgiven person, but we are entombing ourselves. For when we cling to a grudge, we live within a dungeon of our own construction. We are trapped in the bondage of our own unforgiving hearts. And so as the old expression goes, to forgive is to set the prisoner free, only then to discover that the prisoner was you. Why should we forgive? We are to forgive because we serve a very forgiving God. This should characterize us as Christians. We are the most forgiven people in all of the world. Therefore, we ought to be the most forgiving people in all of the world. For time purposes, we're going to talk much more about forgiveness next week and in the weeks to come. So I'm going to move on to commandment number four. Commandment number four is this. Give generously. Can we say that together? Give generously. Take a look at verse 38. Jesus teaches it this way. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You ever sit down with a sandwich and a bag of chips, and you open up that bag of chips, and it's like 50% air, 75% air. Like, where in the heck are all the chips? This bag is half empty. It's not pressed down, shaken together, running over. This bag is full of wind. A Christian should not be characterized by that kind of giving because God is not characterized by that kind of giving. A Christian is, is characterized by generosity. I think the most generous person I've ever met is my father-in-law. I have been often overwhelmed by his sense of generosity, and I have never seen him complain or be bitter about being generous towards someone else. The Lord says, I love a cheerful giver. He does not love a stingy giver. In fact, stinginess is not something that should be a part of our lives as followers of the Lord Jesus. So here's the test. Are you a generous person? How many times in your life has someone told you you're a very generous person? And then how many times has somebody told you you're kind of stingy? <laughs> Take those two and add them up, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. We can all grow, I think, in the grace of giving. Jesus says, I want you to be generous. Why? Because our God is a generous God. We give because our God is a giver, and when we give, we reflect him. Now, I'd be remiss if I just didn't offer a special thanks here to so many of you at NBC. In December, we did this end-of-the-year giving campaign, and we thought we were stretching us a little bit by setting a goal of over $200,000 in December giving. Uh, not only did we make that goal, we so far exceeded that goal that over $400,000 came into the offering fund in December, and we are so blown away by your generosity and your obeying this very command of the Lord Jesus. We are so excited about what's happening here at NBC and so excited about the year to come and all God wants to do here. So thank you for living out this very command of the Lord Jesus Christ. The best is yet to come. So that's command number four, give generously. Command number five, choose godly leaders in your life to follow. Can we say that? Choose godly leaders in your life to follow. Now, the religious leaders in the first century were the Pharisees. And Jesus is calling into question their ability to lead. But, of course, the same principle would apply to us. So here he mentions this in verse 39. Uh, it says, he also told them a parable saying this, Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. So imagine, if you will, two blind men approaching a crosswalk in New York City. And one of them is attempting to lead the other one safely across the road. Well, this is a very dangerous situation. And Jesus says, just like that, if you want to stay out of the ditch, then you got to be careful about who you're following in life. Before you follow someone's advice, take a look at their lives. Look at their families. Look at the fruit that you can see. Is this a person that you want to emulate? Is this a person that might perhaps be leading you into a ditch? A mentor of mine once told me the, the thing that will influence your life the most are the people you spend time with. And so be careful about the company that you keep and the leaders you choose to follow. So who are you spending time with? Who are your leaders? Who are you following? Who's investing in you? Choose godly leaders in your life and choose wisely. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we've seen five very distinctive commands. I'll just review them with you and put them up on the screen. Out of all the things that Jesus could say, he says, here's the five things I want you to worry about in terms of my kingdom and my, my commands. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to, not to judge. I want you to forgive others who wrong you. I want you to be generous in your giving, and I want you to choose godly leaders in your life. This is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. The question is, will we listen and will we obey? And that leads us to the final section of his sermon as he kind of wraps up with what I'm calling the litmus test of Jesus' kingdom. Here he closes the Sermon on the Plain with two final stories. One's about two trees and one's about two builders. And they both serve a similar purpose. They are tests. They are tests meant to help me with self-examination. So first, the parable of the two trees. Take a look with me at this one, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So just pause there for a second. Jesus is teaching on the plain. He's outdoors. Uh, perhaps there's some thorn bushes nearby. Perhaps there's some trees nearby that he points out to them. And he just says, hey, look over there. Thistles. Thistles. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you find thistles on fig trees? No, of course not, Jesus. I mean, I'm not a farmer. I'm not an agricultural person. But everybody knows you don't find thistles on fig trees. Okay. One more question. Figs. Do you find figs? On thorn bushes? No, Jesus. Everybody knows you don't. You don't find figs on thorn bushes, and you don't find thistles on fig trees. I mean, to say that you could is crazy. Anybody who would tell you that, mark it down. They're like Looney Tune nuts, or they're lying. Okay, Jesus says, you're my follower, right? But you're not really loving your enemies. You're not really generous. You're not really forgiving. You're not really following godly leaders. And you're very judgmental. What does this say about you? 
In fact, he phrases this question in a very convicting fashion. He says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? There's two trees. One has good fruit. One has poison fruit. And I get to choose if I want to live my life in obedience to Jesus' commands or if I want to live my life in disobedience to Jesus' commands. I choose life or destruction, good fruit or bad fruit. Which tree am I? Years ago, when I would wait with my kids at the bus stop, we would play follow the leader as we were waiting for the bus. I was the leader. And so at the bus stop, I'm like hopping on one foot, and they're hopping on one foot. I'm doing jumping jacks, and they're doing jumping jacks. And, and they're trying their best to mimic their dad and follow the leader the best that they can. And I was trying to do some things that I, I found to be less exhausting. And my kids are still following along, like intently getting this game. And if they messed up, man, they were upset. If they messed up, they're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm out. I'm out of the game. They wanted to do well because they were really clear on the purpose of that game and the nature of that game, and they knew I'm supposed to do exactly what the leader does. I'm supposed to imitate the leader. They were like crystal clear on what that game was all about. But correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like we play follow the leader with Jesus very differently. We think, well, I know Jesus wants me to follow him in this or that, but I don't really actually have to like literally follow him. I could just think about following him in my mind. I don't have to literally follow him. I could just follow him in my heart. No, I don't really have to do these things. I could just do a Bible study and think about what it would look like to do these things. Or I could just plan to follow him later in the future. Is that how the game works? One commentator on the Gospel of Luke, Mike McKinley, says it this way, quote, true discipleship involves not only verbal approval of Jesus, but also practical obedience to his command. Now, you might be saying, man, Pastor Dave, I fall so short of this standard. I, I don't even know where to begin. Well, here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to do what Paul Tripp calls fruit stapling. Let me just read from Tripp's book, Instruments in the Hands. He says this, if a tree produces bad apples year after year, there is something drastically wrong with its system down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling apples onto the branches. They will also rot because they're not attached to a life-giving root system. And next spring, I'm going to have the same problem again. I'm, I'm not going to see a healthy crop of apples because my solution has not gone down to the heart of the problem. If the tree roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. And then Tripp says this, quote, much of what we do to produce growth and change in ourselves and others is little more than fruit stapling without examining the heart, the root behind the behavior. So may I ask you a question? Have you had an experience of God's spiritual regeneration in your life, that God the Holy Spirit has done a supernatural work in you, such that the things you used to love you now hate, and the things you used to hate you now love? Have you come to Christ in true repentance and faith? If so, that's step one. You come to Christ, who then changes you 
from the inside out so that you can see things in his kingdom as upside down. In fact, here he says every tree is known by its fruit. Well, that's true of the Lord Jesus no less than it's true of everyone else. The only reason I can live out the Sermon on the Plain is because I know Jesus first lived out the Sermon on the Plain on my behalf. He fulfilled this for all of us. Blessed are the poor. Isn't Jesus the one who was rich who became poor for us? Blessed are those who hunger. Isn't Jesus the one who had plenty and yet came down and became hungry on our behalf? Blessed are those who weep. Isn't Jesus the one who came down and burst into tears? Be generous. Was there anyone who was ever more generous than the Lord Jesus? Forgive. Didn't Jesus forgive? Love your enemies. Isn't this exactly how he demonstrated his love for us? While we were his enemies, he died for us. Before we can ever fulfill the sermon on the plain for Jesus, we have to first understand that Jesus has fulfilled the sermon on the plain for us. And then after that work of regeneration occurs in our lives, we don't just staple fruit onto our tree. Our tree is made new, and we begin to bear real, true, authentic fruit, the fruit of the Spirit at work mightily in our lives. And here in this magnificent sermon, after Christ forgives you and gives you new life, he puts his spirit inside of you, and he says, this is how I want you to live. I want to live my life through you right now. And these words show us exactly what it looks like to follow in his steps. So Jesus is a fork in the road. And what we do with Jesus' words, Alistair Begg says, is a great signpost of our true identity and our eternal destiny. Again, to quote the great Yogi Berra, if you see a fork in the road, take it. Right here, Jesus is saying there's a fork in the road. You can choose me, and I'll offer you mercy and forgiveness and grace, and I will give you a new life. Now, after we make that decision, after we come to Christ, he now builds our life on a firm foundation. And this leads us to the second parable. Jesus says this in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Notice, if you will, this is a story about two men. They're somewhat similar, but they're somewhat different. Look at how much they have in common. Notice they both have plans for their lives. They both had some ambitions. They both have plans for the future. They both want to build something, and they both want to have something to show for their lives. And each of them had a dream. And to be honest, for a season, they were both somewhat successful. And another thing they had common, had in common is this. They both heard the words of Jesus. Did you notice that? Another commonality in this story is they both faced the same storm. Did you notice that? The wise person was not exempt from the storm. They both had storms. They both had struggles. They both had difficult times in their lives. Friends, I wish I could tell you that following Jesus in your life would exempt you from the storms of life, but that wouldn't be the truth. 
So they both had plans, they both heard the words of Jesus, and they both had storms. But one person, Jesus says, was a wise person, and the other person, Jesus says, was an absolute fool. The only thing that made them exposed as different was this storm that came in. And the only difference that we're told here in this text is one person chose to obey the words of the Lord Jesus, and the other person chose not to obey the words of the Lord Jesus. That's the difference. Pretty simple. One of them hears Jesus' words and does them. The other one hears Jesus' words and doesn't do them. Which one am I? Which one are you? There's only two ways to build your life. One way will stand really strong. One way will collapse in on itself. Are you the wise builder who's building your rock on the foundation of Christ and all of his teachings? Or are you this foolish builder who thinks you know better, who builds without a foundation? If so, one day there will be a great crash. And Jesus is warning you to be prepared for that day and build your life in obedience to him. Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, quote, The biggest reason for the ineffectiveness of contemporary Christianity is a failure to take seriously the radical difference that Jesus calls for as we follow him as king. Let me invite the worship team to come back for one final song, and as they do, I'll share one final story. If you take the train into New York City and you go over to Rockefeller Center, you're going to see four large murals there that depict the progress of mankind over the centuries. The first painting is a primitive man working with his hands, attempting to survive his environment. The second painting is a portrayal of man having become the creator of tools, and you can see civilization advancing. The third painting, this third mural, shows man in the industrial age having become the master of the machine, and the comforts of civilization are growing. And then as your eyes move towards this fourth painting, it surprises you because it seems so out of context with the other three. The last painting is a painting of Jesus Christ teaching this very sermon. And the crowds are there listening to his wisdom, crowds from the first century and, and crowds from the 20th century. And underneath of that fourth mural are these amazing words. Man's ultimate destiny depends not on whether he can learn new lessons or make new discoveries or conquests, but on his acceptance of the lesson that was taught him over 2,000 years ago. And Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you have not left us without a strong foundation and words to follow. Holy Spirit, we would invite you to come into our lives and nudge us and convict us as you will. For we want our lives to be built on the foundation of Christ and all of his teachings. And so we pray that you'd find us faithful and we pray that you'd be patient with us as we seek to follow you and learn from you and be your disciples. Bless us in this endeavor, for we need you desperately to accomplish this. But we trust through your Holy Spirit that you who have begun a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Please stand.